You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. And I've got a really surprising and very cool guest, uh, Rebecca Jarvis. She's ABC News' Chief Business, Technology, and Economics Correspondent. Um, and she's coming out or has come out with a documentary called The Dropout, which is going to tell the story of Elizabeth Holmes, a uh, college dropout who is the founder and CEO of Theranos, which has uh, <clears throat> recently fallen into ruin for its uh, apparently fraudulent practices. So, Rebecca, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Hey, Rich. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, uh, tell me about uh, how did you first get a heads up on, you know, suspicious things going on with Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes? What first brought the story to your attention? Well, it's interesting. So, I I work for ABC News, and for ABC News, I cover technology and business, and I also look at a lot of stories around consumers. And about four years ago, I was working on an investigation into the exploding cost of healthcare and the fact that healthcare uh, costs, medical costs, are one of the top reasons people file for personal bankruptcy. And in the context of those investigations, I came across this company called Theranos, and it was being pitched to me at the time as the antidote, the way to save money on medical costs. Um, the, the idea at the time was pitched to me as a way that you could go out and get blood tests for half the cost of what you'd find at your traditional laboratories. And there were a handful of people that were singing Theranos' praises, but when I would go back and say, okay, but show me an independent analyst that's talking about this company and corroborating this, it was really hard to find anyone to say that. So that's what initially piqued oh. my interest. And then around that time, it started to be, this is late 2013, 2014, all of a sudden it's inside of Walgreens, I'm hearing more about it, and I'm starting to see Elizabeth Holmes, the founder and CEO, who you mentioned is a Stanford dropout. She left Stanford at 19 years old, you're seeing all of these articles about her and she's on the speaking circuit. She's at all of these conferences. And meantime, I'm reading that the valuation, her company is now worth nearly $10 billion. Forbes at the time was saying her personal net worth was $4.5 billion. Of course, that's on paper wealth based on uh, the value of her company. But I just right. thought, huh, it was one of those okay, this is intriguing. And that's when we started looking more deeply into it, looking at her, looking at what she was promising, starting to dig around and talk to various people who were involved um, in the company. And 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 we, we weren't really sure where it was going to take us at the time. And then as things started to unravel, that's where we started to see more and more and started to 
I mean, we were always looking to to speak to the different players. We spoke to a number of people who worked at the company um, and worked for her and attorneys who are now suing her on behalf of investors who put millions mm. of dollars in. Um, but but I, I think one of the things about this story that um, it might surprise some people is this idea that it wasn't just purely the ultra high net worth investors who put money in this company. Of course, if you're familiar with this story, you probably have heard names like the Waltons, that's the Walmart family. Rupert Murdoch put $125 million into the company. Um, the DeVos yeah. family, now Education Secretary Bessie DeVos, her family put uh, over $100 million in. Bob Kraft, yeah. anybody who's watching the Super Bowl is going to know the name Bob Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots. He even had money in this company, but there were also people in Silicon Valley, for example, um, an executive assistant I spoke to, retired executive assistant, who got a tip just being out, living out in the valley, heard about mm. this company. It was supposed to be the next Apple, and she put basically her life savings into the company with the hope that it really was that, the next Apple. Yeah. Well, uh, a little bit of background on the story and the promise of Theranos for people that don't know. So what what was the promise of the company and what were they selling? So the whole idea, and, and I've spoken to a number of people about this, including Avi Tavanian, who was Steve Jobs' right-hand guy at Apple, who <laughs> was a very early member of Theranos' board. He left after a short span of time, and you can hear his story in more complete detail in the first episode of the Dropout podcast. But the promise of this was truly revolutionary. The idea was that the Theranos technology would allow you to walk into a Walgreens, for example, and get your blood tested without that venous draw, without having to go, uh, you know, poke around with a big needle in your arm and take a lot of blood out. Instead, they could take a few drops of blood from the tip of your finger and they could run hundreds of blood tests on those few drops of blood. Now, if that had worked, it truly would have been a game changer. Anybody out there who's had their blood drawn the traditional way knows it is not a pleasant experience. No one enjoys it. Not to say that you would enjoy getting it done in the you know Theranos way, but ultimately, if they had made this work, it would have made blood testing way easier. And you could imagine mm. that it would have applications in, in everywhere from the doctor's office to the drugstore. Um, there could have been military operations or military applications, rather. That was one of the things that she pitched. She, uh, according to Walgreens, according to board members, according to a number of the people that we've spoken to, she suggested along the way that this was already in use in the battlefield in Afghanistan, which we now know is not the case. You know, it's funny. I, I, I swear I didn't deliberately do this, but I went to a lab today to have my blood drawn, you know, and I did like a whole bunch of tests. It took eight tubes out of me, not just a few drops. So right. I, again, I didn't plan on doing this, but it's funny that I did it today. So like the idea, right, of a few drops of blood from your finger is a heck of a lot better than that. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and, and not, a, not a knock on the nurses, the phlebotomists, who are the ones who are generally speaking drawing the blood. They they do as much as they can in most cases to try to make it as pain-free as possible. But the the yes. act of putting a relatively large needle into your vein is not a pleasant experience. Yeah, yeah. So that was the promise of Theranos. So it, it got as far as Walgreens actually having 
taking people's blood in Walgreens and testing it there? Or like how far did this get and what was the impact upon people? Between 2013 and 2015, um, Theranos technology, Theranos had rolled out these Theranos wellness centers in 41 Walgreens in Arizona and California. And we speak to a number of patients who went to Walgreens to get the Theranos test. And in one case, for example, there's a woman named Sherry Ackert in Phoenix, Arizona, who went to her neighborhood Walgreens. She went in, she was a breast cancer survivor. She was breast cancer free, but getting her blood checked regularly. Anybody who's had cancer understands this. You continuously go and you get your blood tested. So she goes in for a routine blood test. She decides, I'm going to check out this new Theranos thing. It sounds kind of cool. She goes in, she gets her results back. And what do they say? Her results suggest that her estrogen levels are that of a 35-year-old. Now, what does that mean? What it essentially means is that she believes and her doctor believes that there could be a tumor growing inside of her, a recurrence of cancer. And it's only after her doctor recommends that she goes to a new laboratory and get her blood tested again that she learns that, in fact, the Theranos test was entirely wrong. It was hundreds of points off and that she does not have a cancer recurrence. So imagine the, uh, and, and, and ultimately, this is, you know, a fast forward to the, the Theranos story, but down the road, Theranos ultimately had to void tens of thousands of tests because they were inaccurate. So people like Sherry Ackert show how this really impacted real people. And there are people we've spoken to who thought they might have diabetes, who got misinformation around that. So it had a very real cost on patients and people, in addition to the fact that the investor class who put in more than a billion dollars over the course of Theranos's history and lost everything that they put in, um, it, it, it had an impact that was that I think a lot of people would say, wow, like that human toll is is even more significant in some ways than the monetary toll. Yeah, that's horrible because there's false positives, false negatives. You know, there could have been people out there. I don't know. Maybe there were people out there that should have gotten treatment and didn't. And who knows what happened to them as a result or vice versa. You know, they, their, their heart fell out of their, their chest because they thought they had cancer and they didn't. That's horrible. Right. And there were, there were people, um, so we, we've spoken to a number of different doctors about this. There, there are, uh, and I'm not a doctor, so this is not my language, but there were, for example, blood tests that showed people uh, either needed more or less blood thinner in their system. And, and we spoke to doctors who said that actually can be a life or death question if you are making choices about whether to take a blood thinner or not to take a blood thinner um, as a result of these tests. That's crazy. So um, there was a book out, Bad Blood, by I believe yep. John Kerry Rue. When how did that coincide with your investigation? You know, have you spoken to him and have you guys worked together? How does that yes. figure in? So John is both a source and a source of inspiration um, on this story. He and I spoke. He's in the podcast, The Dropout. He's also in our documentary, The Dropout. And, um, and I highly recommend anybody out there who's really interested in this topic reads his book, Bad Blood, because he does uh, a tremendous accounting 
of, of his, his analysis and his investigation. One of the things that we have done with the dropout is that for the very first time, you are now hearing in both our podcast and our documentary from Elizabeth Holmes herself. Because leading up to basically, Rich, where all of this goes is ultimately Elizabeth Holmes is charged with fraud by the SEC, charges which she settles without admitting or denying wrongdoing. However, as of today, she still faces criminal charges from the Department of Justice. She's pleaded not guilty, but there will be a trial. And if she's found guilty, she faces up to 20 years in prison, both she and her partner, um, this guy, Sonny Belwani, which Again, I'll tell people to listen to the podcast because we go in really big detail on who he is and their relationship. But, but the crux of it is, at this point, she's facing these charges, criminal charges for what's taken place. And we now have these tapes where for the very first time, until now, all you've really heard from she and the company are these you know, basically PR statements. They, they put a statement out for when, when something happens, they put a statement out. Well, now, under oath, we are hearing from her for the first time. And I have to say, when we got these tapes, it's my team and I, uh, my producers, Taylor Dunn and Victoria Thompson and I, when we got these tapes, we immediately started watching them. And it's Elizabeth Holmes being questioned for three days for eight hours a day. And we couldn't take our eyes off. We couldn't stop listening to them because it was absolutely remarkable to hear what she was claiming versus what she would say under oath when she was asked direct questions. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a strong question, but is she a psychopath or a pathological liar or both? Or what's your what's your just pure opinion of her? Um, I think what I really hope is that people will watch and they will make their own opinions. I don't think it's for me to say, but I do think that you will come away with a strong opinion after you watch what we're presenting mm -hmm. or listen to the podcast. Um, I think it's impossible not to. I think one of the reasons that I was drawn to this story beyond the, the story of Elizabeth, which I think is fascinating and remarkable. I mean, it's got everything from money to greed to deception and even romance, but one of the things that drew me to this story was how so many smart people could get it so wrong. And I covered the financial crisis. I covered the fall of Lehman Brothers. I covered Bernie Madoff. And that sort of is something of a thread that, that worked throughout all of those. This idea that, you know, time and time again throughout history, we see these insane things happen. And we say, how did all of these smart people not see this coming? And this is another one where I think that's that's part of the story. This this to me is truly one of the most remarkable stories I've ever covered in my career. And I, I've been doing this now for more than 10 years. Um, but but I do think it raises questions about us, about how how we think in terms of a herd mentality, how the emperor has no clothes. I always loved that story growing up as a kid. And I and, yeah. and this this raises some of those questions for me. Yeah, I, you don't have to go into gory detail, but you know you've covered a bunch of scandals. What what does this share in common, and what's different about it? Is there one or two things on either side sure. you can discuss? Well, so one of the we, we actually dissect um, in one of the podcast episodes 
uh, Bernie Madoff and Elizabeth Holmes. And the reason we do that is because there's an attorney who is suing Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes on behalf of investors. And he has also gone up against Bernie Madoff. And he says that they are very similar people. He's spoken to both of them. He's interviewed both of them for depositions. And he describes both of them as smart, charming bullies. And it's a very, there's more to it than that. But I think it's a really interesting thing how people curry favor and trust, how being surrounded by the right kind of people creates validation. And uh, he, he describes it as something called affinity fraud, where if you, you know you have friends who buy into something, then you feel like, well, your friends know what they're talking about. So you, you trust your friends. So you mm-hmm. implicitly trust whomever your friends have bought into. So he sort of talks about how he sees this issue um, and sees Elizabeth Holmes in similar ways to how he sees Bernie Madoff. I think what adds a new dynamic here is that she's she is young and was so young when she dropped out of Stanford and how there, there's a duality there of, on the one hand, that's what allowed her to get so much attention initially, being so young, being this uh, wonderkind and this dropout and, you know, so much of the time we um, glamorize dropping out. We, we look at the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Steve Jobses of the world, and even she absolutely glamorized Steve Jobs. She dressed like him. There's, there's a lot of detail about that in our story. But when I said duality, I think part of what cued people like John Carreyrou and others to the fact that something might be amiss here was this idea that dropping out of college with less than two years at Stanford University to create a game-changing revolutionary medical device would be close to impossible, if not impossible. And we spent a lot of time on Stanford University's campus talking to professors there about this story. And there's a professor there named Phyllis Gardner who is phenomenal. She's great. She's brilliant. And she has a a really uh, interesting story to tell. But one of the things she talked about with us is this idea that, you know, she's sitting down the hall from Nobel laureates, MD, PhDs. These are not, you don't become a Nobel laureate in medicine, in engineering by dropping out of college. And while there are things that, you know, you could program a computer even as a dropout, computers are not the same thing as medical devices. An iPhone, for example, can have a glitch or two and, you know, the world doesn't fall apart. Although, I mean, I'm sure some people would argue that their world does, but it's not life or death in the way that medical devices have to work 100% the day that they hit the market. They have, we have to believe, we have to know that day one, what it says it can do, the promise of it, is the actual reality of it. Well, you know, I've got to bring this up. I mean, human nature is human nature. Yep. How much of this, you know, whether it's, I don't know, you know, whether it's offensive or not, I just, I just think it's apparent, you know, how much of this, how much of her success and her ability to con people was because she was also a woman 
and a good looking one. And there was that implicit, I don't know, I guess sexual undertone or overtone when she would talk to investors, let's say they were male, you know, whether or not anything was going to happen or not. But I would think that that would contribute to the, uh, to literally to the allure and the seduction of people falling under her spell, under her charisma. I think, I would think that it's all part of it. What are your I, thoughts? I, well, I think you have to watch the story as it unfolds. I mean, she did not have a female on her board. That's something that came up. Um, even when she was doing panels uh, and getting a lot of positive attention, it would come up in the panels. You know, you're a woman. You've started a company. Where are the other women on your board? Um, Kara Swisher, I, if, I'm not sure if everyone in your audience is familiar with Kara, but Kara is, um, she, she started Recode. She writes for the New York Times. And this is something that she and I talk about, the makeup of the board and what actually was happening behind the scenes. Um, one thing I can tell you is that from the depositions, it's very clear that um, former Secretary of State George Schultz, who is a member of the Theranos board, was a very um, active recruiter of other individuals to be on her board, which ultimately became this who's who of government heavyweights. Henry Kissinger was on the board. Uh, James Mattis, Marine Corps General James Mattis, retired Marine Corps General James Mattis, who is now uh, President Trump's former uh, Secretary of Defense, was on the board prior to joining the Trump administration. Um, Senator Bill Frist was on the board. Um, Admiral Roughhead was on the board. Her board was really, uh, as one of the employees says, was prepared to do battle. Uh, the question is, where were the people who had the experience in the medical industry and medical devices? Bill Frist, Senator Bill Frist, was one of the few who actually had some background. He was a surgeon at the start of his career. And so when people looked at this, uh, you know, some of them from the highly technical side of Silicon Valley, when especially, the, the, you know, the, the venture capital world in Silicon Valley, she got a lot of money, but the venture capital world is somewhat split between those who are just all early stage investors versus those who specifically look at medical devices and biotech. And most of those medical device biotech venture capitalists who have MD, PhDs, who really vet the technology, most of them passed on this investment. It was more the general investors and the family offices that put the millions of dollars in. And a lot of those connections came from her connections to Stanford. Uh, George Schultz had serious connections to Stanford. He was a member of the Hoover Institution. And a lot of people who were on her board were also members of the Hoover Institution. Was there a particular investor that that caused an avalanche of other investors to come on board, or was it just a slow accumulation of uh, you know these these powerful people investing, and that just attracted more? Well, I would I would say that it had more to do with the timing. So most of the really big investors. So she left Stanford um, years before most of the big investors came on. She started Theranos. 2003, 2004 timeframe, but the big investors really got on board in the 2013 to 2015 space. And what helped bring them on board were two things. The board of directors, which had really uh, uh, come together at that point. Then you had the Kissingers and the George Schultzes of the world on the board. But the other really big game-changing thing was Walgreens. The fact that this found its way into Walgreens made it 
real in the eyes of a lot of investors because, you know, medical devices and, and starting a company in medicine, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners who are in these fields appreciate this, it's a very expensive endeavor. And it mm. takes a lot of time to get from concept to being out in the mainstream to go from stealth mode to the main stage. The fact that she was now on the main stage inside of Walgreens was a gigantic step in the eyes of a lot of investors. And that's what gave them this sense of, okay, this all, um, you know, th this seems to be like a worthwhile bet to make. I guess it's very sad because in a lot of ways, Elizabeth Holmes is like the ultimate super achiever, but it was her bad ends and bad means, you know, it was with, but look what she accomplished, you know, it's, yeah. Again, it came to ruin, but it's amazing when you think about what she accomplished in such a short period of time. It's really too yeah. bad. And, and and very few people would argue with the fact that this is a brilliant woman. Um, you know, she had the true bona fides of like she, you know, she studied Mandarin on weekends and in summers when she was in high school. I spoke to um her, her high school honors physics teacher. And he told me that she was one of the, you know, most outstanding students ever to be in his class. I spoke to friends of hers from high school, and they said that she was always known as just a very hard worker who was ambitious and motivated. So that, that it is when you, when you look at where things are today, and where they might have been, yeah, it's a it's a very sad fall from grace. You you know you've studied her, you've studied Madoff and some other you know corrupt people. What do you think happens to them psychologically? Is it a slow acceptance of more and more bad behavior until they're all of a sudden so far down the road that it's there's nothing they can do, or is it like a sudden psychological break and then they they just kind of go off the rails and do whatever they want? Well, I think probably everybody is different. Everyone's story is their story. Um, and, and without explicitly saying anything about her, because I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist in any way, I do think that it is, you know, you can see how somebody who is incredibly driven and motivated, having looked at all of these incredibly driven and motivated people over the course of my career, the, the idea that the ends justifies the means, that's something we get into around the ethos of Silicon Valley and this fake it till you make it mentality where, um, and it's interesting, there's a, we, we talked to a person in one of our podcasts, in one of the episodes of the podcast, who was hired by Walgreens to vet Theranos as an opportunity for Walgreens. Mm -hmm. And he, he has this quote that stands out in my mind. He's, he's talking about Silicon Valley and he says, you can literally breathe the air out here and you're ready to fake it till you make it. And I, and I do think that there is some of that where talk to, I, I interview founders all the time uh, about their companies and what they've accomplished. And most of them, you know, you, you speak to them after, They've accomplished something. And a lot of them will say that there's this sort of moment before they break through where it's this question that's up in the air. Are we going to make it? Are we not going to make it? But you have to just keep pushing forward. Now, in, mo in those cases, they're not dealing with um, 
you know, medical device companies. In most of those cases, it's a website or it's it's a consumer product, and um, and they're not putting something on the market that they think is a danger. But there is that sort of moment where they push, where they have to. I mean, look at Steve Jobs. Look at look at Apple. Look at Facebook. Look mm. at all of the companies that consumers deal with all the time these days uh, with new product launches, with everything. Everything is, for the most part, right up until launch day, there's that question of, are we going to get there? Are we going to get there? And I... I, I think that that is um, it, it's it's part of the conversation in the podcast. It's part of the question that we leave people asking, listeners asking about how we look at technology. Because you know whether or not today the stakes are getting higher and higher when it comes to technology. A self-driving car, for example, a self-driving car that is on the market that is not ready has a much greater potential to do harm and and lots of it than some other technologies. And we're at this moment now in time where a lot of the technology that's being developed around us, if it's not ready for the main stage, it could actually be very destructive. And even the things that are ready for the main stage are. So I'm hoping that we're raising those questions as well, because I think it's an interesting and important conversation to have right now. Out of the scandals you've covered, do you think that they don't seem to have much effect? They seem to maybe affect the climate for a brief period of time, and then everything goes back to normal. Do we ever learn our lesson? I don't know. <laughs> do we? <laughs> I mean, I think I think as as somebody who's also covered the stock market for many years and the ups and the downs, there's there is a thing. It's called human nature. And even though we want to, even though we go back to history. We have a natural inclination as humans to always think this time it must be different. It's it's kind of like, you know, I, I covered the financial crisis and, and people were pulling their money out of the market at the very bottom because people were so worried and they were afraid that all of their money would be gone. Well, guess what? The people who stuck it out, who didn't pull their money out, had had made it back and then some within three years. But those who pulled their retirement out of the market at the worst moment in the financial crisis lost at least half of what they had in, half of their net worth. And yet every time we have another blip, every time things get to another point of unsteadiness in the stock market, people are always coming to me and saying, do I sell it all? What do I do? And it's it's so hard. You have to fight in many of these ways. You have to fight your own nature. I also think, though, in this case, to me, one of the big lessons, a takeaway is just ask questions. If you are faced with something that either sounds too good to be true or has various components to it that just don't make sense, one of the things that, that Theranos did along the way is they consistently, when people would ask about the technology, how does it work, explain it to me, can I see it? Their argument was always that it was a trade secret and therefore mm. they couldn't share it. And that worked for them because a lot of people sort of left it alone at that point. A lot of journalists left it alone and a lot of the public left it alone. And I think that the lesson for me um, as a journalist, but I think the lesson for all of us is you have to always ask questions. The people who ask the questions are and, and don't stop until the, the answers are actually making sense. 
are the ones who get it right. That happened in the financial crisis. Uh, that that happens throughout history. So I think it's worth worth considering. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's funny. A joke comes into my mind. I don't know what the punchline is, but you know, Madoff and and Holmes walk into a bar is the start of it. But <laughs> I, I actually thought as you were talking, it'd be interesting to have those two talk at some point. You know, if they end up being <laughs> both in prison, I wonder what they would say to each other. It's, it's just about that crossed my mind. But that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when you look at the, um, you know, in the in the book Bad Blood, it, it seemed like, you know, Theranos and Holmes, they were vicious. They went after people with every means necessary. I mean, legally, and they intimidated them. And just, did you find it hard to talk to people that were involved with the whole situation? Did Carrie Rue's book, like, open the, open the doors? Did it relax everyone where they would talk to you? Are people still afraid? I mean, what did you I encounter when you try to talk to people? People are still afraid. Uh, they are still, there are still some, I shouldn't say everyone, but there are still some who are. We were doing an interview in LA with uh, a group, they're called Shyat Day. They were the ad agency that did the Think Different and Apple's 1984 campaign. And when um, Theranos was preparing to go into Walgreens, Elizabeth Holmes, who I mentioned earlier, was really, really interested in Steve Jobs and dressed like him and wanted to craft her technology to look like his. She hired this company, Shyat Day. And we were sitting in, this is now about six months ago, we were sitting in a room doing this interview with the two guys uh, who had worked with Elizabeth or two of the guys who had worked with Elizabeth and Sonny Belwani and Theranos on this new campaign, the ad campaign. And they sat across from me and these two guys from the ad agency said they were looking at the door to see if someone was gonna run in, like if the cops were gonna come in or some, they were waiting. They were on the edge of their seat feeling like something could happen here. We're still not fully sure what we were dealing with and we still aren't totally clear whether it's okay to talk about this or not. Yeah, that's crazy. Hmm. Yeah. Well, um, so the podcast, uh, can you give the name again? Let's give some resources for listeners because, you know, it's, it's there's such intrigue about this. I'm sure they want to learn more. So there's the book Bad Blood by John Carreyrou. And then what, what have you been working on? What's out? You said a podcast called The Dropout. Tell people yeah. where they can find it. So the podcast is called The Dropout. It is available now wherever you get your podcast, wherever you listen, whether it's Apple or Spotify, you can find it there. Um, if you enjoy what you're hearing, we would love it if you would subscribe, leave us a review. You can find me. I post all of this stuff on social media, and I am at Rebecca Jarvis everywhere, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Rebecca Jarvis, R-E-B-E-C-C-A-J-A-R-V-I-S. And uh, we will also have the video documentary that's coming out very soon. And if you want to watch a short preview of that video documentary, um, you can go to abcnews.com and we have that. It was on Nightline and you can watch that because there's a video version as well. Okay. And then, um, you know, I, I'm sure you can't say what, but any, any other juicy scandals that you're you're looking into at the moment that are that are building. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to know? There are. There are actually. Um, I will say this: going through the process of doing this project, um, there it has. I I've, the process of investigating and looking at something over a long span of time. Um, 
makes me think that there's a lot more. I mean, it's not a revelation, but I know that there's a lot more that's out there, and I have my eye on a handful of stories. So um, to anybody out there who enjoys the dropout, keep watching because there will be more. Um, and, and even with the dropout, even with this story, it's amazing to me how many people have come out of the woodwork since we started this, um, just sharing the podcast. I've already been contacted by a number of people. So if you're out there and you are connected to this story, feel free to reach out to me because there's always the chance that we would do um, some sort of update or an interview in the future to update listeners and viewers because we know how interested people are in this remarkable story. Okay. And what's the best way for people to reach out to you specifically? People can reach me on Twitter. That's a great way, at Rebecca Jarvis, or on Instagram, at Rebecca Jarvis. But I think Twitter's easy. You just tell me who you are, and, um, you know, we vet you. So I don't just mm. take your word for it. I'll need some I'll need some background checks to make sure that you're legit. But I'm happy to chat. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, this is a fascinating story, and I'm uh, really glad that you're, you've done this work to, you know, to give it life and to talk more about it. And, uh, sure. you know, thanks for coming on the podcast. This has been super yeah. interesting. Great. I'm so glad you're interested, Rich, and I hope you'll listen to uh, The Dropout, and uh, I'll be listening more to what you've got. We really appreciate you taking the time to chat. All right. Hold on a second. You're listening to The Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.